0: The Life of David Livingstone, written and recorded by Russell Gammon. The tale I'm about to share with you of David Livingstone's life is one of the most compelling stories in all Africa's history, and it's not hard to understand why it still captures our imagination today, because for sheer drama, it's hard to match. During his career that spanned a period of about 30 years in Africa, he would traverse over 28,000 miles of uncharted territory, and the backdrop to these journeys is an extraordinary one because his first journey in 1853 heralded the beginning of the golden era of African exploration. During the next 30 years, these men writ their names large in the historical record. John Hanning Speke, Sir Richard Francis Burton, Henry Morton Stanley, Sir Samuel Baker, Verney Lovett Cameron, and of course, the hero of our tale, Dr. David Livingstone. Between 1853 and 1883, then, these men crisscrossed the continent of Africa in a series of journeys each more audacious than the preceding one until at last they had mapped most of the major geographical features of this part of the earth. Even in such distinguished company, and make no mistake, this is an extraordinary collection of men. Livingston stands head and shoulders above his peers, and I believe that what set him apart more than anything else was the fantastic vision that he had for Africa's future. It may interest you to consider that this vision of the potential that exists for commerce and free trade to transform the lives of the people of Africa is today a call echoed by African leaders the length and breadth of the continent. There is nothing that better illustrates Livingstone's understanding and vision, but I also believe that nothing speaks more eloquently of the love that he bore the people of this sometimes troubled continent. Moreover, the greater impact of his life is that this same vision and passion that he had for Africa would capture the imaginations of an entire generation of young Britons and convince them to come out to Africa and make this place their home, and for me, this is a very personal connection to this story, because I am, of course, talking about people like my own great-grandfather, John Meikle, a Scot who first entered the country that is today Zimbabwe in 1893, but that, of course, is another long story, perhaps for another time. Now, if you learned your history from the same books that I did, then you also will have been taught that David Livingstone passed through the part of the world where I live today, the Victoria Falls in November 1855, and at that time we were taught that he was credited with discovering the waterfall. I can clearly recall this lesson from my early school days because the story so captivated my imagination, but I also remember being puzzled about the chronology of these events. My confusion stemmed in the main from the fact that we had been taught the previous year that people had been living on the banks of the Zambezi River for about 80,000 years prior to Livingston's And I must confess that it seemed unlikely to me even at the age of eight to suppose that in 80,000 years these folk had failed to notice that there was a waterfall and it seemed equally unlikely that they would require the services of a Scotsman to come halfway round the world to point it out to them. My good friend and fellow storyteller from the Eastern Cape, Alan Vea, has a wry sense of humour and he sums up these inconsistencies thus. The history lessons of our youth, he says, were a record of events written by the victors. And he hastens to add, and you know, they seldom made mistakes. Recalling these lessons, I cannot help but be reminded of the wisdom of Mark Twain, who said that he never allowed school to interfere with his education. But please, don't misunderstand me. In poking fun at the history lessons of our youth, I don't mean to diminish for one second the significance of Livingston's first journey in 1853 because... This journey marks an unprecedented watershed in Africa's history. Consider, if you will, that when Livingston began this expedition, virtually nothing was known about the geography of the interior of the continent. But within 30 years of this journey, the entire continent, a landmass of over 30 million square kilometers, had, with the exceptions of just Ethiopia and Liberia, been divided up between seven European nations. The age of African exploration that began with this first journey of Livingstone's would later be recognized as the opening chapter in the period of history that has appropriately become known as the Scramble for Africa, and these events would define the fate of the entire continent. Now, ironically, the main players in this arguably the most significant chapter in all Africa's history were not Africans but Europeans. The nations of Britain, France, Germany, Portugal and Belgium took centre stage, and to a lesser extent Italy and Spain were involved as well. In the years preceding Livingstone's first journey, these nations had coveted territory in the interior of the continent, but their ambitions had been curtailed by Africa's hostile environment. Thanks mainly to the scourge of malaria, the average life expectancy of a European in the interior of Africa in those days was just six months. Statistics taken from the Royal Navy's garrisons in various parts of the world in 1850 paint a stark picture. For the Royal Marines stationed in the Caribbean, the Mediterranean and the Far East, it was accepted that out of each battalion of a thousand men, ten a year would die of disease and accidents over and above those casualties sustained in the line of duty. But for the garrison in West Africa, that number would be on average 487 per year per thousand men. These are slim odds indeed if you happen to find yourself posted to the Fever Coast as they called it for four years. The sailors of the Royal Navy, famous for their gallows humour, had a little sea shanty. They used to sing about this part of the world and the chorus line went or the Bight of Benin, the Bight of Benin, where 14 came out and 20 went in. And under these circumstances, it's not difficult to appreciate why no one was queuing up to explore the interior of the continent. In spite of their grand ambitions, then, these nations have had to content themselves with scrapping over the few decent ports that existed along Africa's coastline and biding their time until something changed. And this change, when it came along, was like so many historical events, it went largely unnoticed at the time, and it is only with the gift of hindsight that we realize that at about this time there was a seismic shift that occurred. The substance that would usher in this change was an unassuming one, an off-white powder that was extracted from the bark of a tree of the cinchona genus. It's called quinine. Now quinine had been around for a while. It had first been recorded by the Jesuits in 1633, but it had been very hard to come by in significant quantities. In order to address this, the British had established plantations of these cinchona trees to try and manufacture it on a large scale, but the yields had been disappointing. Then in 1840, a British botanist named Charles Ledger discovered a subspecies of this plant while on expedition in Bolivia, and recognizing their potential economic value, returned with seeds of this plant which he tried to sell to the British. Given their earlier disappointments, they declined, and Ledger sold his seeds instead to the Dutch, who planted them on Java. The yields from this new subspecies were spectacular and would give the Dutch a virtual monopoly over the quinine market for the next 100 years, Its proven efficacy as an antidote for malaria was firmly established by 1850 and its wide-scale availability would make travel to the interior of Africa survivable for the first time in human history and this would pave the way for the age of the African explorer. In just 30 years then, these men would map the major geographical features of the continents and the maps that they drew were to provide the tools long awaited by the nations of Europe And so at the Conference of Berlin in 1885, these maps were used to draw the boundaries of what were to become the modern states of Africa. And for the sake of convenience of those European nations, they decided to use the rivers and mountain ranges of the continent as borders between these newly created states. These were momentous decisions and the aftershocks of these events continue to shake this continent to its core to this very day and will likely continue to define our future for many years to come. These new borders you see ignored the pre-existing territorial boundaries that had separated different ethnic groups one from another. Now given that there is this pre-existing sense of ethnic identity among the people of Africa that is both deep-rooted and profound. It is hardly surprising that so many of the conflicts that have racked this continent in the last 50 years have not been fought between these modern states, but rather within them. That these events happened, there is no denying, and that they are to this day an emotive, complicated and controversial subject should really come as no surprise to us. But We must, for the time being at least, leave aside these larger issues to focus instead on Livingston's life and his part in this larger puzzle.